All right, kids, you can head out to your classes, and everybody else will have a seat and uh, find Ephesians chapter 5 in your Bible. Welcome again. If you're guests, we are glad you're with us and hope you've been made to feel welcome. And um, we're walking through the book of Ephesians, and today we're going to talk about uh, love. And um, PBS uh, did like a, a series, an eight-part series called The Great American Read, and basically it was exploring America's 100 best love novels. And um, the series notes that one theme that emerges often, and of course, you, you know, we could talk about music and all the songs that are written about love, but in these 100 best love novels, one of the most common themes is the quest for love. Uh, especially a romantic love that will endure. And here's some quotes that people said during the series about these novels. Love is the driving force behind everything we do. Uh, I love a good love story. I think everybody wants it. If you don't have it, you're trying to get it. If you have it, you're trying to keep it. Every book on this list is about love and death and finding love that transcends death. I mean, who's not going to love a love story? Well, you know, the thing about the Bible is the Bible is actually the greatest love story uh, that's ever been written. And the, really, the, the overarching theme of the Bible is the unfolding progressive revelation of God sending His Son out of His love to uh, atone for our sins, the scarlet thread of redemption motivated by the love of God is uh, like the key uh, kind of mega theme that can be traced throughout all uh, the pages uh, of Scripture. I mean, if we're honest, we crave love. Like our bodies crave oxygen, our souls crave love. But um, at the same time, you know, we, I mean, it, we know we want love. We know we should love others, and actually, I don't know if you ever thought about this, but that's one of the key pieces of evidence for the existence of God. Because if we appreciate and desire such non-tangible qualities as love and truth and justice and goodness and righteousness and beauty and those kind of things, that would imply that we have a soul. And if we have a soul, there has to be a creator, some type of higher spiritual power who made us because just random chance and chaos combining together in the product of natural evolutionary forces cannot account for the existence of a soul. So, you know, we, we want love. Sometimes we don't get love. And then, some, you know, we feel unloved. And then other times we know we ought to love people but we fail to love people like we should, right? Welcome to marriage, everyone. Um, you know, as Christians, we know that we love God. We should love God, and we desire to do that, but sometimes our love for God's cold, right? I mean, we know that families are supposed to be a safe haven, a shelter, a place of love. That's not what they are sometimes. Sometimes they're more battlegrounds than they are shelters. We want our community, our country, uh, to, to be you know, a loving, kind, caring place. But 
I mean, we live in a culture of hate today. Division in, in, in so many ways. It, we want love, but it seems like it, it's hard to come by. And, and I guess the question would be is, why is this the case, and how can it change? And I, I would argue the reason that it's so difficult is because we have a heart problem. Um, you know, most of you know, I mean, I've shared about it before that, you know, Molly, her middle child, had open heart surgery when she was three days old. She had a very rare condition called a coronary artery uh, fistula. They told us it was about 20 cases a year in the United States at that time. Hers was so unique that they actually wrote a medical journal article about her. But basically, her, her coronary artery, artery was enlarged, and so... It wasn't making the right connections, and blood wasn't flowing in and out properly, and it wasn't getting oxygenated. Basically, you know, she had a heart problem, and so the blood wasn't flowing in and out right. I would argue that spiritually, we have a heart problem, and that keeps love from flowing in and out of us in the right way. It's a heart problem. You see, religion would say, and I think the world would say, that, you know, we just need to love each other. Right? We just need to get along and so on and so forth. But it doesn't work that way. It's a whole lot deeper than that because it is a heart issue. And so the question is, how can we really experience the love of God? Because if this is real, it's a love that transcends circumstances. It's a love that's constant. It's not a love that comes and goes. Because here's the thing. If we're depending on other people's love to fill us up, there's no guarantee of that. Right? I mean, we're all imperfect. We're not going to love each other perfectly, even if we genuinely love each other. But, you know, maybe someone you thought loves you, they, really, they betray you. Someone that you love, they love you, they die. What, what happens to you then? God's love's constant, and it, it can fill us up. And then out, if we're, once we're filled up with God's love, once it's in us, then it can flow out of us to other people. That, that's really the main idea of, of what we're going to see here in Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. So let's just read these verses. Paul says, Therefore, be imitators of God as, as dear children. You familiar with the word mimic? The word that's translated imitators here in, in the New King James uh, is the Greek word that we get our English word mimic from. So he's saying mimic God, imitate God. And therefore connects it back to what uh, he's already said. I think it connects back to the entire previous section. But particularly verse 32, we talked about being kind, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Even as God, uh, for Christ's sake, has forgiven us. And then he says, walk, which represents what? A lifestyle. Live a, walk in love. Live a life of love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us because real love is always giving and offering in a sacrifice to God. And he's borrowing, on, or borrowing from uh, you know, the Old Testament sacrificial system here. Uh, love brings about atonement, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. Now, this may sound a little strange to you, but actually the, the key word in understanding these two verses 
uh, is probably the little word as. The fifth word in the sentence there after the comma. Um, and you say, why is it so uh, significant? Well, um, this word in, uh, is a, in, in Greek is a conjunction. But um, basically, one Greek scholar says it should be taken as having both a causal and a comparative uh, force. And, and so, basically, uh, it's the reason and the pattern for trying to live a life that is characterized by love. And, and so, really, what he's saying here is that the love of Jesus gives us both the example of love that we're in, to aspire to, but more importantly, His love in us is actually what empowers us to be able to love other people. So when he says here, walk in love, as Christ has also loved us, and the other things he says, he's saying, walk in love, following the example, mimicking, following the pattern of Christ. But he's also saying, walk in love, because it's the love of Jesus that empowers us uh, that fills us with love that can then come out of us to other people. So uh, the key to, to, to love then is not trying to be more loving. It's actually a heart change to where we're filled up with the love of God. So that then can spill over to other people in our lives. That, that's the gospel solution to issues of love. Does that make sense? So let, let's unpack that a little bit. So the main idea is we're empowered to love by the love of Jesus. So let's look at the first side of this, which is that we are loved by Jesus. So let, let's think about the example of his love. And, and so really the example of his love, what, what he's saying here is that when we were sinful, rebellious, enemies of God... Jesus gave his life away for us, offering himself as our sacrifice. And that is the ultimate example of love in the history of humanity. Jesus didn't die for his friends. He died for his enemies. Think about what we've already read in, in the book of Ephesians. All of this connects together. Remember, Paul is now making application of the doctrine that he presented in the first three chapters. Remember, we said the main idea of the second half of, of Ephesians is that uh, we uh, live out what Jesus expects of us by living out of what Jesus has done for us. And there, I don't know if there's a better example of that than what we're looking at in Ephesians 5.2. You could almost paraphrase it to say we love out in the way that, that Jesus expects of us by living out of the love that he's put in us. That, that's, that, that's the big idea here. But remember Ephesians 2, 1 through 5, he says, You were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just like the rest uh, of mankind. He says, this is who we were spiritually. But God, being rich in mercy, why? Because of the great love with which he loved us. Understand this. 
Sometimes people say we're saved by the love of God. That's a theologically incorrect statement. God's love has never saved anyone. If God's love saved us, everybody would be saved. We'd be universalists. God's love did not save us, but God's love prompted his grace and mercy, which prompted him to send Jesus, which prompted him to die on the cross, which actually atones for our sins. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. This is the example of Christ's love. Tim Keller puts it this way. It's a great way, I think, to express the gospel. This is beautiful. He says the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dare believe. Yet at the same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. That's the gospel. It doesn't gloss over our sin. But it says that God didn't gloss over our sin. He loved us while we were still sinners. We're not accepted because we obey. We're not accepted because we love God. We're able to obey and love God because he loved us and accepts us in Christ through the cross when we repent and trust him. That's the love of God. That's the example of his love. And he says walk in love even as Christ also has loved us. But Think about the next phrase here, and let's talk about the sacrifice of his love. He says, walk in love as Christ also has loved us and gave himself for us, an offering, sacrifice to God. Now, think about the the sacrifice that Jesus made. I, I, I think that we could argue, we could claim that how much we love is in direct correlation to how much we pay, the the price we pay. What's it cost us to love someone or something? The more we love, the more we're willing to give. Love is an action. It's not just a sentiment or a feeling. And so Jesus paid the ultimate price. I mean, think about how he suffered in dying for us, in expressing his love to us. I mean, think about... You know, his mental suffering, the anguish that he experienced, the anguish of betrayal, the anguish of facing the the cross and knowing what he was going to experience there. Such anguish that in the garden the night before, it, it prompted him to sweat drops of blood, the Bible says, a medical condition known as hematidrosis, where under extreme stress, the capillaries and blood vessels can break down and your body actually secrete blood. That's how stressed that he was. If you think Jesus can't understand me when I'm stressed, have you ever been so stressed that you sweated blood? Think about his physical suffering. I mean, if you've ever seen the movie, The Passion of the Christ, I mean, there were some Catholic elements interjected in there because that's Mel Gibson's background. Maybe some of it, you know, we don't know for sure. But, uh, I mean, based on the historical studies I've done, uh, I think it's pretty accurate. I mean, the beating, carrying a cross up a hill. You know, just the experience of having your wrist, your leg, you know, nailed to a cross. I mean, basically, um, you die on a cross in agony through asphyxiation, through basically, you know, 
uh, your, your pericardial uh, cavity, your lungs, your heart filling up with fluid that you can't you know, get out because you can't push yourself up enough to breathe. And you, basically you're drowning in those internal fluids is how you're dying on the cross. Basically, crucifixion is death by slow, awful torture. That's what Jesus experienced for us. If you doubt his love, think about that. But even the, the physical suffering wasn't the per- worst part of it. Think about the spiritual suffering. On the cross, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For the first and only time in all of eternity, his fellowship with his Father was broken. The sinless, spotless Lamb of God became sin for us. The perfect one became, he bore our curse. He uh, experienced all of the wrath of God for all of our sins poured out on him. I mean, it was hell on the cross. And he experienced all of that. He bore all of that for us. Why? Because of how much he loves us. And his love prompted him to make this sacrifice for us. But then, I think we also need to think about the atonement that resulted from his love. Because it says here, he's an, he offered himself an offering, a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma, which pictures the Old Testament sacrificial system that was pointing to Jesus as the true and ultimate sacrifice for our sins. Uh, the things in the Old Testament were just a picture of the one who was coming to actually pay the price for our sins. What this verse pictures, what the Bible teaches, it's what's called penal substitutionary atonement. That Jesus didn't die on the cross as a revelation of God's love. Ultimately, he didn't die on the cross just to be an example for us. Jesus died on the cross literally in our place as our substitute, bearing our sins, paying the penalty that we owe God. Uh, absorbing, satisfying, propitiating the righteous wrath of a holy God, bearing all of that in his body and literally paying the price for our sins. One of the ways that you can know as to whether or not you're a Christian, whether, no, one of the ways you can know as to whether or not somebody actually believes in true biblical Christianity or they're just, uh, they believe in man-made works religion is do you believe that salvation was fully accomplished on the cross? Do you believe that Jesus did it all, that he saves? We don't contribute anything to it. He is the Savior. We're not saved by our works. Uh, We're not even saved by our faith. We're saved by His grace. We're saved by His finished work. We receive it, yes, by repentance and faith, but even that is the gift of God. Even that is the working of the Holy Spirit in us. It's all Jesus. He atoned for our sins. The Bible says, Isaiah 53, Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement uh, upon Him is the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. Uh, we have turned everyone to His own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of 
of us all. Do you believe that all of your sins were laid on Jesus? And is that what you're relying on for your salvation? The Bible says in Romans chapter 5, while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one scarcely will die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love. God demonstrates his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. Verse after verse we could go through. Uh, let me just give you one more. 1 John 2.2 2 says that he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. He's the atoning sacrifice for our sins. See, this is the gospel. We're unrighteous. We're sinful. God is holy. And for God to be holy, he has to uphold his law and punish sin. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. So we deserve to die. But Romans 3.26 says uh, that through Jesus we can be saved. And through the cross, God can be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So uh, we can die and go to hell and be punished for our sins there, or we can trust in Jesus who came and died and paid the penalty that we owe God in order to bring us back to God, in order to give us the forgiveness of sins. There's a story that's told about uh, Fiordello LaGuardia, who's one of the better-known uh, mayors of New York. In 1935, one night, he decided to go and uh, kind of take over night court. And there was a, a lady, an older lady, a grandmother, who was in there... Um, uh, on charges of theft. And um, uh, she had stolen some bread from a shopkeeper. And uh, basically the, the penalty for this was either a $10 fine or 10 days in jail. She didn't have uh, $10. And basically her defense was that uh, my daughter's husband left her, left her with the kids. They had no money. My grandchildren were starving. And um, I stole this so that my grandchildren uh, could eat. The shopkeeper wouldn't have compassion. He wouldn't back off. He continued to press the charges. Mayor LaGuardia said, well, I have to uphold uh, the law. I have to, uh, you know, prescribe the penalty that the law prescribes. So $10 fine or 10 days in jail. And then he got out his wallet, took $10 out of it, paid the fine for her and said, there is a 50 cent fine for everybody in this courtroom uh, for us having a city where a grandmother has to steal to be able to feed her grandchildren and keep them from starving. So instead of paying a $10 fine or instead of going to jail for 10 days, uh, they ended up, he paid the fine for her and then they collected $47.50 beyond that for that uh, widowly, widow grandmother uh, to take home to have some money to be able to feed her grandchildren with. And in a sense, that's a picture of the gospel. We're guilty. We owe God. We can't pay that price. But in his grace through Jesus, he paid the price for us. He fulfilled all the righteous demands of the law. And in his mercy, he withholds his judgment. And then in his grace, he gives us $47.50 on top of that. Because as we've seen in the book of Ephesians, we're blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ. It's a love that brings about atonement. 
Are you trusting in Christ and Christ alone uh, for the forgiveness of your sins? So we're loved by Jesus, but remember that little word, as, that leads to we're empowered to love through Jesus. We're empowered to love through Jesus. 1 John 3.16 puts it this way, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Jesus loves you. He laid down his life for you. Now, his love is in you, so you're empowered to love other people. Lay down your life uh, for them. So think about it. Because of the love of Jesus for us, that means we have a new identity as dearly beloved children of God. When it says in verse 1, therefore be imitators of God as dear children, that's what it's saying. We're dearly beloved children of God. 1 John 3, 1 puts it this way, behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. It's, it's an incomprehensible love for us. But even beyond that, the Bible teaches us that we have been regenerated and now we have a new nature, so the love of God is in us. Romans 5, 5 says, Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. See, we need to understand this. This is one of the primary differences between the gospel and religion. <clears throat> We do not have the capacity to love God. So if we're going to have love for God, it actually has to come from God. That may be hard to understand. You may think, you may look at a little kid and think, well, this little kid loves Jesus. If, if they love Jesus, it's because God's done a work of grace in their, their hearts. Naturally, we're all at enmity with God. We hate God. We love ourselves. Right? In our society today, what's the answer to everything? You need to love yourself more. Right? Um, I would say that's not the answer. That's the root of all of our problems. I've never met anybody who loved themselves too much. I've never met anybody who didn't love themselves enough. It's, I mean, we all love ourselves too much. You say, what about people who loathe themselves, seem to be, all that kind of thing. At the end of the day, it's still self-focused. We love ourselves. Right? I mean, I love me some me. I mean, that, that's, just, that, I mean that's just how it works. I mean, we are naturally selfish. And so the question is, how do we actually become people who love God and others. Think about it this way. Let's think about the great com what's called the great commandment for a second. Now, I mean, th this is crucial. Th this is really important. The, the next few minutes of this are, are, are really important, okay? Uh, I mean, what I've talked about before, most of you have heard a million times. The next 10 minutes may be a little different, okay? So Luke 10, 25 says, Behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, What shall I do to inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, what's written in the law? What's your reading uh, of it? And um, uh, he, he answered and said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he answered and said to him, you have answered rightly and do this, you will live. So the great commandment, love God, love our neighbor. 
right? That's what we're supposed to do. But Martin Luther used to talk about what he called the dilemma of the great commandment. And that is, how do we actually do this? And even beyond that, why would you actually have to command someone to do something that they actually love? Or how can you actually command someone to love something? I mean, think about it. So I want to read you something uh, from J.D. Greer, and I'm going to intersperse in some, some illustrations with it. So here, here's what he says. He says, religion and gospel both change you, but in two entirely different ways. Religion works on you externally because it is trying to get you to shape your behavior. The gospel works internally, and it changes your behavior by changing your heart. We say it's the difference between mechanical change and organic change. Mechanical change is change from the outside. Imagine if you were putting a lot of pressure trying to bend a metal bar. That's the way religion changes you. The gospel, by contrast, changes your behavior by changing the attitudes and affections of your heart. It does what religion cannot do. Now, he says this. You see, religious change won't work because even though it can coerce your behavior, it won't actually change your motivations. And what God wants is not a group of people that conform in their behavior and mechanically do what they're supposed to do. God wants a group of people to love him, to love him with all their heart, soul, and mind. And that's the great commandment, isn't it? To love God with all of our heart, soul, and mind. Martin Luther always talked about the dilemma of the great commandment. The dilemma of the great commandment is God is commanding us to do something that by definition we can't really be commanded to do. Because if we love something, then we don't need to be commanded to do it. Right? So if you think you're a good enough person to like just be saved by being such a good person, but you don't love God, you're still missing the whole point. Does that make sense? Like you don't need to be commanded to do something you love. Like nobody needs to command me to eat steak. Nobody needs to command me to eat chocolate. Nobody needs to command me to watch the NBA Finals. Nobody needs to command me to make out with my wife. I mean, all of these are things that I would love to do with no coercion. Okay, so um, why command someone to love something they already love? Okay, flip side of that though, he says, is if we don't really love it, then no command of God could actually change that. You can't be commanded to love things that you don't naturally love. Right? You can command me to love cats all day long. But it ain't happening. I mean, my outward behavior toward cats can be modified. I break for cats. But I'm not petting whatever you're Beloved cat's name is. Because I think it's crazy. I think it's demon-possessed. I will break for it when it runs out in front of me because this has actually happened, believe it or not, more than once. We'll break for it, but it's not out of love, at least for the cat. It might be out of love for God or out of love for just what's right. Or Let me give you a better example, okay? This is a strange example from my childhood. I think I was in middle school. I might have been a little younger than that. But, um, 
And, and I, don't, I have no clue. I meant to ask him this past week and didn't get around to it. I have no clue why I did this because it was so out of character because my dad was completely chill about these kind of things. But one day, uh, for whatever reason, I don't know what possessed him, he got on this kick and he decided that I needed to try buttermilk. <laughs> I mean, I have no idea where, where this came from. But, uh, I mean, he just decided that for some reason my life was not complete if I didn't drink some buttermilk. I mean, it, it was weird. And I don't know why. I honestly don't know why anybody would drink buttermilk. <laughs> this makes no sense to me. Because if it had a different label on it, if it just said milk, we would pour it out and say this is like spoiled or something. So I don't know why we're going to drink it. I mean, I, I guess people cook with it sometimes. It works in cornbread, I suppose. But he got on this kick that I had to drink buttermilk. And we went round and round and round and round and round over this until finally, I don't remember, through, uh, he cajoled me, threatened me, something. So I finally took a swig of buttermilk and I spit it out all over the carpet in my room. And um, he just kind of gave up at that point, came to his senses or whatever. And, and, and the point is, I mean, you can force somebody to do something. You can't force them to love something. And listen to me. If your religious life consists of you trying to force yourself to love God, you're going to be miserable. Because that is religion. It's not the gospel. The way we grow and develop love in our hearts for God is through looking to the cross of Jesus Christ and Christ coming alive on the inside of us. See, he goes on to say, you know, that's the dilemma is how, we, how do we learn to love God again because you can't be commanded to love things you don't naturally love. He says that's what the law cannot do. The law is like railroad tracks that show us the direction we're supposed to go, but they're powerless to move the freight along the tracks. The gospel is the power that changes the heart so that we learn to love God. And it gives us the power where obeying the commandments of God become instinctive. The gospel changes us not by commanding us something, but by revealing something to us. The Puritans called that the expulsive power of a new affection. You know how we change? You know how we overcome temptation? You know how addictions get broken in our lives? It's through the expulsive power of a new affection. It's because we love, begin to love something or someone more than the things that had held us captive in the past. It's a heart change. It's not external uh, striving and conformity uh, to a law and a standard. It's, it's a new heart. It's the love of God poured out in us through the cross of Christ by the work of the Holy Spirit, the expulsive power of a new affection. See, it, it's like this. Um, at this point in my life, I weigh somewhere between 50 and 55 pounds less than when I weighed at the highest point in my life in several years ago. And um, part of the, I mean, like you can will yourself to diet and all those kind of things. That would never work for me. But sometimes, you know, one of the first changes I made was I started drinking water instead of other things. Now, 
I feel bad. If I, I mean, like I can't hardly, I can a little bit every once in a while. If I drank two glasses of sweet tea, I'd probably get sick. It's the expulsive power of a new affection. I don't like fried food anymore. I mean, maybe every once in a while. And it's, a, it's, like, it's not like I'm willing myself now to do something in a way that I don't want to do. I want to do it differently. And that's what the gospel does on the inside of us. Or see, when we sin, listen, when we sin, you ever heard like well-known Christians who sin and they give this confession and, and, and they, um, you know, they give these reasons for it. And I understand there's always things in the background. But you know what I'd love to hear somebody just say one time? I did it because I wanted to do it. I understand, you know, behind every sin we commit, there's a lie we believe. There's some deception there, those kind of things. There's, there's foolishness in our minds. But the issue is the love in our heart. We ultimately do what we want to do and what we really love. And so if we love sin, if we love a thing more than God at a particular moment, we're going to give in to that temptation. The expulsive power of a new affection. The way to overcome temptation, the way to actually change in our lives is through heart change. I mean, think about it this way. Um, something that, um, you know, I've always been committed to is when I had opportunities when people would show up at our door like Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, those kind of things, to actually try to share the gospel with them. Um, and, I mean, we had a couple of Jehovah's Witness ladies uh, show up at our door on Saturday afternoon a few weeks ago. And, um, you know, Robin asked them if they wanted to come in. And one of them said, what for? Which was kind of strange to me because, like, isn't that why you're here? Uh, and, you know, and we talked with them, shared the gospel with them. They actually got up and walked out while I was talking. So I don't know if that's good or bad. But uh, I've always been committed to that. Except for uh, one exception. My all-time favorite TV show is 24. Hands down. No, I'm not much of a TV person. If I'm going to watch TV, it's usually sports. But, you know, love this show. Well, one time, this was a few years ago, um, on the season finale of 24 one year, a couple of Jehovah's Witnesses showed up at our door. Um, and I have to say, in that moment, I love 24 more than I love sharing the gospel with Jehovah's Witnesses. I did what you all do and pretended like I wasn't there. Um, and um, is that right or wrong? I don't know. Probably wrong to love a TV show more than somebody else's soul. But the point I'm making in this case is I did what I loved. And the love is what prompted the action. If our actions are going to change, our hearts have to change. And when our hearts change, and what we love changes, which only God can do. You can't command love. You can produce love. The gospel can produce love. When that changes, then the way we act is going to change. And that's real heart gospel change and not just empty religious effort. And so when you then put all this together, we're loved by Jesus. We're empowered to love through Jesus. The therefore would be, we are able to do what this verse says. We are able to obediently walk in love. And so, what does that look like, uh, quickly, in, in closing? Well, 
according to the great commandment, we're to love God, we're to love other people. We're to love other people. So here's some characteristics of love that we see based on this verse. Love's an action. And uh, if we went on in Luke, we don't have time to right now, but after the exchange Jesus had with this lawyer, remember he told a story to illustrate what he was saying. The parable of the Good Samaritan. And what's the point of the parable of the Good Samaritan? Well, part of it at least is love is something you do. The one who loves is the one who acts with compassion and mercy. Love is an action. Love is a lifestyle. We're to walk in love. It's easy to do a loving thing every once in a while. But day in, day out. Are we going to love the people closest to us? Are we going to love people beyond us by sharing the gospel with them? Only the love of God in us produces that kind of consistency in love, I think. Love is forgiving. I mean, if this connects, therefore, connects it back to verse 32. You know, uh, you, you, we might have a problem with somebody. You say, how can I love that person? Well, go to Matthew 5. Love them like an enemy if you can't love them like a friend. Love is forgiving. Love is giving you know, if Jesus is the example of our love, he, he gave. Love, real love always gives. And love is sacrificial. And so, I think we can measure our love for other people. Not in greeting card slogans, not in Hallmark movies, but in, is it a lifestyle? Is it an action? Are we forgiving people? Are we giving are we sacrificing? But then, ultimately, we're to love God. And like I say, it's, it's not natural. And, and do you understand that ultimately what God is looking for from us is to be loved by us in response to the love that he's given us? God is not ultimately measuring like how many times you show up at church, how consistent you are in your small group attendance, how much you're giving, how many good deeds you've done, etc., etc., etc. He's interested in your heart. And do you really love him? And do you understand if we really love him, these outward actions will take care of themselves as the byproduct of loving him. And so, what's it look like to love God and you know, there's probably a lot of things we could say about this, and I've only got a couple minutes. I'll just give you two applications in closing. Obedience. Jesus said in John 14, 15, very simply, very bluntly, if you love me, keep my commandments. So if we're living our lives doing what we want instead of what Jesus wants, and we say that we love him, there's a major disconnect there. If you love me, Keep my commandments. Our love for God is expressed by our obedience to God. And then secondly, I, I would say we express our love for him by worship. By worship. By actually ex actively expressing our love to him in praise and thanks and in, in, in giving. And, and, you know, worship's a lifestyle. It's something we do at church. Giving ourselves to him is a living sacrifice. Let, let's close with looking at this scripture, Luke 7, 36. Then one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went down to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil. 
and stood at his feet behind him weeping. And she began to wash his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed him with the fragrant oil. You see the passion uh, that's there? It says, now when the Pharisees who invited him saw this, he spoke to himself saying, this man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner." And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. So he said, teacher, say it. Uh, there was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And a denarius was a day's wage in that day and time. So say one person owed $100,000 and the other owed $10,000. Uh, like 10 times more. And when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have rightly judged. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You know, there's this contrast between this, quote, sinner and this religious person, but see how she's responding to Jesus and how he's responding to Jesus. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You do not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore, I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who sat at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Because only God can do that. And do you understand every time in the Gospels <clears throat> where Jesus claimed to be able to forgive sins, he's claiming to be God. And then he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Her action expressed her faith. Remember what he said? Forgiven little, you love little. If you're forgiven a lot, you love a lot. And this will be the point. If we want to grow in our love, it's by continually looking at the cross and being reminded of how much we've been forgiven and the love that brought that about. And as we look to Jesus and his love for us, our hearts are filled with love and our hearts are changed. And then that love is going to flow back to God in an obedient life, in worship to him. And it's going to flow out to others in us treating them in actual loving ways. The gospel is the key to everything, including love. The gospel is the only thing that changes our hearts because you can't love something just out of command. God has to reveal it to us. And so, I just ask in closing, do you love God today? Do you love other people? Or would you say, yeah, I love the Lord, I've been saved, I know what he did for me, but my love has kind of grown cold. Listen, you can't manufacture it outwardly. The way your love is going to be stirred up again is going back to the cross over and over, fixing your eyes on Jesus, being reminded of who he is, what he's done for us. If you're struggling with that, I'd encourage you just to get your Bible, get a concordance, or go online to Bible Gateway and, and find, you know, just a, a listing of verses and just read passages about the love of God. Read passages about the cross of Christ. Meditate on that until it gets a hold of you on the inside. Listen, if you're not a Christian, you're not sure, you thought it was all about religion, all about what you do, 
I, I hope you see today what Jesus has done for you, the love that he has for you. And I hope you'll stop trying to earn his love and begin resting in his love. Look to his finished work on the cross. Repent of your sins. Give your life to him, trusting in him and him alone and what he has done for you. There's forgiveness in that. There's love in that. There's acceptance in that. There's life change in that. He transforms us from the inside out. If you've got questions about you becoming a Christian or about any of this, come and see me when we're finished. So if we could, let's, let's bow our heads and, and close our eyes.